Uh, our next scripture reading is from the book of Acts, chapter 9, verses 1 through 19. Acts 9, 1 through 19. Meanwhile, Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any who belonged to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now he was going along and approaching Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? He asked, Who are you, Lord? The reply came, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Get up and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless because they heard the voice but saw no one. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. For three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple in Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. He answered, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Get up and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. At this moment, he is praying and he has seen a vision of a man named Ananias coming in and laying his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard of many about this man, how much evil he has done to our saints in Jerusalem and how he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who invoke your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is an instrument whom I have chosen to bring my name before Gentiles and kings and before the people of Israel. I myself will show him how much he must suffer for, for the sake of my name. So Ananias went and entered the house. He laid his hands on Saul and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on your way here has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and his sight was restored. And he got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, regained his strength. The word of God for the people of God. Now, if you will oblige me, I want to start off this morning with a bit of audience participation. Can you all help me out with that? I just want a show of hands of anyone here who uh, has personally or even known someone who had the resurrected Christ show up in a vision of light that blinded them for three days. Is that how y'all got to know Jesus? Anybody? No? Uh, I can't say I'm surprised by the lack of hands. This is an uncommon story. We don't hear people talk about Jesus in this way on a daily basis. Before this sermon is over, though, I hope to show that Christ does in fact show up like this all the time. But in order to do that, let's first take a look at this story. This is the famous story of the road to Damascus, the story in which Saul the persecutor, Saul the Pharisee, Saul the murderer becomes Paul, Paul the apostle, Paul the author of the majority of what we call the New Testament, Paul the missionary to the Western world. So in professional wrestling, y'all didn't know this is where this was going. 
I'm sorry. Um, there's a moment when the bad guy, who's referred to as a heel, that's the, the industry term for a bad guy, for one reason or another in the storyline becomes a good guy, who in the, in the industry they call a babyface. Have you all ever heard these words before? Heels and baby faces? Uh, and so when they go in this moment from being a bad guy to a good guy, this is called a heel face turn. And it's extremely popular. It's one of those moves that so many of the names that even folks who don't follow wrestling know, like Dwayne The Rock Johnson and Stone Cold Steve Austin and Eddie Guerrero and The Undertaker, these folks that you've heard these names before, and part of the reason everyone knows them is because all of them had spectacular heel-face turns. Because there's something about redemption, about change, that makes stories important to us. So even outside of the expansive world of professional wrestling, these kind of stories mean something. They bring us joy. The transformation of Saul to Paul is one of the stories that are so important to us because it is one of the most striking changes in all the Bible. And it's indicative of the kind of change that is possible in the life of all Christians. When we look at the life of Saul, we see a life of religious zeal. We see a life of passion, a life of knowledge, a life of study, these things that we would assume are good things. Saul's driving focus is an unwavering desire to do what is right for God and for his people. Of course, this means that this new threat, these Christians, have to be dealt with. Saul's passion, Saul's dedication, got in the way of Saul's humanity. The text today opens by saying that Saul is breathing threats and murder against the disciples. Now that is some good poetic language for some hatred that I don't think any of us have ever rightly felt before. Breathing threats and murder against someone. It's a level of hate that I don't know if I've ever experienced. It's hate to the point of paranoia. Of course, this isn't a feeling reserved for Saul. If we get away from that poetic language, we can see that paranoia and prejudice are the names of the game for a lot of humanity. It's kind of our default mode on some level. We're constantly looking for the hidden meaning behind others' actions, trying to understand how the words they say are meant to slight us. We're constantly looking, especially at those who seem to be a threat to us in our communities, whether it's over race or sexual orientation or religion or belief. I, it's true, I might not have ever found myself breathing threats and murder against folks, but I have been unnerved by my neighbors. I've been prejudiced about schoolmates based off of the color of their skin or their religious holidays, and I've been hateful towards those that believe differently than myself. And I think this is something that on some level we've all experienced. This is a universal experience. So Jesus shows up in Saul's life in a flash, not in some important religious moment or ceremony, but literally just traveling down the road. Jesus shows up in a flash of light and asks Saul why he's been persecuting him. Not my people, not my church, but me, Jesus says. Why have you been persecuting me? 
and Saul immediately calls him Lord, even before he knows who he is, because immediately this is already starting to affect him. The whole interaction is so short, so immediate, that there's really no convincing, no logic in this interaction. It is just a in-the-moment change. Of course, this kind of acceptance, this immediate change, doesn't mean that it's easy. In fact, it's one of the hardest conversion experiences that we see, because not only does he see this, not only is he clearly experiencing guilt and pain from this situation, now he's suddenly blind. Even though his eyes are open, the text says, this instant Jesus opened Saul's eyes to the devastation he'd wrought. He suddenly sees everything that he's done, the way that he's hurt the humanity of those that he's dealt with, of the lives he's destroyed. With this kind of realization comes pain. It comes guilt. This is a conversion in the same way that surgery is conversion from illness. It's pain, and it requires recovery. So he has three days of recovery, without food and without water. And at this same time, Jesus shows up to a man named Ananias. Now, Ananias is a Christian. Ananias is already a part of the community of faith. He believes and he understands. When Jesus comes to Ananias in a vision, it's not a bombshell falling in the middle of his day, but rather it is the continuation of a conversation already in progress. Jesus comes to him as a friend, as Jesus always wants to do. Christ tells Ananias to go and to heal Paul's sight. Why? Though, have we ever thought about this? Why is this guy necessary in the first place? Jesus made him blind. Jesus can restore his sight. Ananias is a middleman, an unnecessary addition to the story. As such, he's often not brought up as an important part of this narrative because we talk about this as the conversion of Saul to Paul and not really, you know, Ananias and his friends' power hour. But I believe Ananias is just as much an important part of this story as Paul. I believe the Lord used this morning moment not just to change Paul's life, but to change Ananias' life the same. Because Ananias questions God in this moment. Ananias says, why should I do this? This guy's bad. Ananias has prejudice in his heart, just the same as Saul, but rightly so. He's chased Ananias and his friends out of Jerusalem. He stood on as Stephen was martyred. This guy is not a good dude. So why should Ananias trust him? Why should he help him? Why should he give him the time of day? But he listens in this moment. And he goes and he heals Saul. This is the story of two men from two different walks of life from two different religions, from two different worlds, really. But for one reason or the other, both of them hate the other one. Saul hates Christianity and what it's doing to the Jewish people. Ananias would likely make Saul sick before this day takes place. Similarly, Saul's work is infamous among these new Christians. He's bad guy number one. Surely, Ananias doesn't want him around. Why should he trust him? 
And if he does convert, how do we know he's going to stay converted and not just decide to kill us one day? If he does convert, what good could he bring the belief system anyway? So this is a story of two men and their prejudices. But more than that, it is the story of one God who never stops chasing away our prejudices. This is a story of a God who can't stand by and let us go without changing. For Saul, this was a literal come-to-Jesus meeting. It required divine intervention. It required days of pain and suffering. And through this experience, Paul was born. You always hear he once was Saul, and he now was Paul. But the thing about that, uh, Richard will probably correct me as soon as service is over, but Saul is a Hebrew name. Paul is a Latin name. We're really just using this to talk about the same guy. It's not like it's... It's not like he once was Easton and now he's, I don't know, Michael. That's not, that's not a switch in that way, right? Uh, because I think that's important because ultimately we're not expected to completely change our humanity, our individual and our individuality. We're just supposed to change our hearts. We're supposed to become more like Jesus, not necessarily less like who God wants us to be. Paul couldn't have possibly continued the hate after he'd seen the risen Christ in this way. But he experienced it at great cost. Sometimes God reaches us when we hit our bottom, when we have nowhere else to go. And through this refining fire of basically walking through hell and back, we're able to see the sin and death and hate in our lives start to burn away. We're able to repent and reach closer for who God wants us to be. But for Ananias, God is already known. God is already a part of his life. God isn't a tempest that came in to his life unexpectedly and tore his house down, but rather it was a part of a conversation already in progress. Ananias' prejudices was just as real as Paul's, but because God was closer, God was engaged, and God was a consistent part in his life, the prejudice could peel off of him revealing how God planned on working on him and through him. Ultimately, the end result of Ananias' journey and Paul's journey is the same. But the road to it is different because of their postures, their outlooks, and their hearts. God still shows up in the same way that God showed up to Paul that day. God still shows up in the same way that God showed up to Ananias that day. There might not be physical blinding lights and omniscient calls to meet someone on the other side of town, but there is the constant reminder that our humanity is ours and that it's the same as the humanity of those that we hate. When Jesus shows up to Paul, he says, why have you been persecuting me? I've always been taught in Sunday school and in sermons that this was regarding the persecution of the church, just as we talk about the church as the body of Christ. He's saying you're persecuting the church, so it's like you're physically persecuting the body of Christ. This is true. This is a beautiful explanation of what is happening, of this terrible thing. But church, today, Jesus can show up to us and ask us the exact same thing as we sit here as a part of the body of Christ. Because the image of God is on the face of every poor person, 
Every rich person, every black person, every white person, every straight person, every gay person, every Jew, Muslim, Democrat, and Republican we come across every day. And somehow, either through by what we have done or by what we have left undone, we have been perpetrators of persecution in the lives of those that Jesus loves. We've harmed the very image of God in the faces of our brothers and sisters on this earth. We just have to have our eyes open. We have to have the scales fall off enough for us to see it. One of my favorite bands dropped a new album this week. I especially love this because Alicia hates this band. So it's like I can enjoy it and also annoy her. It's wonderful. But the band's called Vampire Weekend. Uh, I heard somebody describe their music as constantly sounding like you're wearing boat shoes. It's very much, it's probably the whitest music physically possible. Um, but I've been listening to it and I've been walking around campus with my headphones on. And you ever listen to music that's so upbeat that you find yourself turning your walking into dancing without meaning to? I uh, was getting on an elevator and I was kind of moving along to the music. Didn't realize there was someone standing right behind me. She scared the fire out of me. I jumped six feet up in the air, took the headphones off, said, I didn't notice you. And she said, I was going to say something, but you were dancing. So I was going to leave you alone. That's the, kind of, that's the kind of music this is. Basically, it's just energetic. Alicia hates it. She's sitting there shaking her head as I'm talking about it. But one of the tunes, the tune I was dancing to in that moment is called This Life. I've had it on a lot. It's a really good song. Uh, and it has a line in it that I haven't been able to get out of my head as I've been preparing for this sermon. The song says, baby, I know death probably hasn't happened yet because I don't remember living life before this. And darling, our disease is the same one as the trees, unaware that they've been living in a forest. Now, when Alicia read this this morning, she said, you dropped that line in there and didn't explain how it fits in at all. And I said, that makes perfect sense. She said, no, you got to explain it. Because we miss out on community. We miss out on relationship and we miss out on each other because we're so focused on our own safety, on our own sanity, and on our own superiority. We miss out on community right in front of us, right around us, just like a tree that doesn't realize there's trees all around it. And the process of God bringing us through this realization of opening our eyes to the forest around us can be painful. But when the scales fall from our eyes, even if it feels like we've gone three days without food and water, it's the, almost like realizing that we haven't been alive before this moment. It's almost like realizing that ourselves were in the way so much that we've not been living. But just like Ananias, we might have already had our first view of the risen Lord, but that does not mean that he can't change us again. Because God's not done working on us yet. There's not someone in here except almost Maxine that can say God is done working on them. There's still work to do. And God's going to get it done on one side of glory or the other. Someday we'll all see the humanity in each and every face. So how do we respond? Because at some point, whether it's through conversation or confrontation, Christ is going to win. Christ is going to win our hearts. 
We're here today because on some level, we see the need to see each other in order to become more like Christ. We see the need for community in order to continue this relationship with the divine. We can't do it alone. We can't do it tucked in a box of copies of ourselves either. The kingdom of God is bigger than that. The table is bigger than you'd ever expect it to be. There's a writer that Alicia and I have adore that basically has made us on some level the Christians that we are today named Rachel Held Evans. She helped us understand our faith and our place in the church. If it wasn't for her, I don't know if we'd be here today. She died yesterday after a very sudden and complex seizures uh, after the flu. Is this whole weird thing. But it was almost impossible being on the internet on our area of social media and seeing all these folks who was impacted by her faith and her connection to them, how they had changed, their faith journey had grown and changed and existed because of this woman, and how all of these folks were from all different walks of life. It wasn't just one kind of person. Uh, it was really fascinating seeing all of these tweets, all of these Facebook posts, all of these videos of folks who were just so profoundly impacted by this lady's work. Folks who would never likely get along on their own were it not for the kingdom of God, were it not for God bringing them together in solidarity. As we go through this journey together, as we continue to have our eyes opened day in and day out with each other, I would like to close today with a quote from Rachel. She wrote, The church of God is saying, I'm throwing a banquet, and all these mismatched, messed up people are invited. Here, have some wine. May we pray. Most gracious God, we thank you.